Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome to 1033. This podcast was created in an effort to create community connection and conversation around mental health. It was originally created by a first responder for first responders. However, the lessons learned through life experience transcend these roles. Join us as we aim to reduce the stigma around mental health and create a safe environment for you, the listener, to reflect on the journey as others share their story. Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. Today, we are joined by Seb Lavoie. He has 20 years service with the RCMP. He started out as a constable doing general duty work. He moved his way up to air marshals and then into ERT, the emergency response team, and then finished off his career as the sergeant major with the RCMP, holding over 20 years of service. Before that, he was in the military. He did three years of infantry work. He now, in retirement, has founded and launched Raven Strategic, which goals are to include coaching individuals, corporations, both in life, leadership, and all different areas of growth. Seb, you also are doing a mental health walk every week for people to give back. All while also doing your master's degree in counterterrorism. First off, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, brother. How do you accomplish all of this? One step at a time, the same way you eat an elephant. One bite at a time, <laughs> as they say. So the, the position you're in in life now, you've been retired for how long? Almost two years, coming up to two years in March. Your career, you've spent a lot of time talking to people online, YouTube podcasts. Uh, so we're not going to dive too much into the past of what you did with the Mounties. Uh, you have a very decorated career. Thank you for your service and your sacrifice, first of all. Um, yeah, my heart always goes to that place for people that serve. We all know that there's a cost to service. Your, I think the, the biggest first question I have for you right now is what was the process like for you when you retired? And what kind of challenges were you seeing in yourself that you needed to let go of as you remove yourself from that position of being a police officer and you're now into the world of civilian life or trying to get back to that spot? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I think I had a bit of a different take on the whole serving and being civilian and not being a civilian. Like, I mean, I never carried my badge around or anything like that. So I was, I was already, um, I had a measure of disconnection, even though I loved my job and I loved what I did. It was a part of who I was. It definitely wasn't who I was. So I didn't feel like I needed to sort of, you know, carry it with me everywhere and, and be that person everywhere. I had a lot of endeavors outside and hobbies outside of policing. And for me, moving outside of policing and moving into civilian a civilian role, so to speak, or not have the responsibility that I had as a police officer, which is very organic. The challenges came by way of spending 20 years conducting risk assessment, 12 of, 12 of which were on the emergency response team. And of course, you know, dealing with the, the high risk of physical harm as well as organizational risk and so on and so forth. And this carried, I carried this around with me to the commanding officer's office in terms of organizational risk and having the ability to conduct these thorough risk assessment, you know, based on 
a totality of circumstances that we were faced with so that we could make the best informed decision at the time. But when I moved out and I went to the business world, one of the things that became really apparent is the enabler that I was in the policing realm became the disabler in the business world. And I'll, I'll qualify that slightly. So I have a very good friend who's a, an extremely successful businessman, and he became a bit of a mentor to me on the business side. And there's a, there's a bit of a funny story with that also, but we can, I guess, talk about that later. But so one of the things that he was always saying to me is, hey, man, we need to be doing this and this and this, and let's try this. And essentially, you know, tossing noodles on the wall to see what sticks. And for me, I was always assessing risk the way I was doing it in policing. And the reality is, if we failed in business, unless you have put your life assets on the line, you're really not losing anything. Like you're just moving on, moving on to the next thing and trying something else until something does work for you. And so for me, I was self-disabling now and I was disabling some of the ideas that he might have on account of this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work because of this and that and this. And then what he would do is say, don't tell me why it wouldn't work. Tell me why it could work, you know? And so as the enabler in the policing world, I, I, I had a, uh, an awakening, so to speak, in the business world that I needed to become that enabler as well in business for myself and others. And that was the biggest challenge, I would say. Secondary to this was the fact that I was institutionalized for so long. And whether or not you admit that it is irrelevant, it is a fact Like we have a lot of structure. There is rules for absolutely everything, including if you can have a beard or not. You know, if you can wear this or not, if you have to wear long sleeve or sheets, short sleeves or whatever the case may be. But in addition to this, you have all these policies and laws and regulations and things that are very black and white at times. And it, it kind of sets you into a box. And then you learn to operate and, and, and navigate life through that box and through that lens. When you walk out of there, there is no walls around you. There is no pathway. You have... All the time in the world, you can do whatever you want with it, but if you misuse it, you'll evidently, you know, have some consequences associated with that. Along with that, I was very used to exchanging an hour of my life for $75 or whatever the, whatever the case was. I can't remember exactly how much it was, but the point is when I came to the business world, you could spend 5,000 hours on a project and make no money. You could wake up with an epiphany and make a ton of money. So money was never the object, but the fact was I needed to get out of the mentality that I exchange an hour of my life for $75 because I never see this hour back. So how am I going to spend it? Has to be meaningful, has to be purposeful, all those things. So that was an, another challenge that I had to feel that I was sitting here not doing anything when I felt I should have been doing something because I was so used to putting money, to associating money with the time that I spent working. Three important lessons in life, uh, especially when you're leaving the RCMP. And this is something, too, that I had to really challenge myself on, too, was uh, the paralysis by analysis. I'll go back to the first kind of hurdle or roadblock that we've we've got a segue into coming out of policing. And that was very much my my big issue as well was I constantly looked at everything around me and found the why or the risk and made sure that everything stayed safe. Now, a lot of times that actually held me back from taking steps in certain areas. So as I was doing this, I was starting to think, you know, is there a different way? 
to do this uh, and landed on this idea or this concept very much my own, my own way as well. Sounds like you did as well. Uh, and it was something that also kind of pushed me further to look at, okay, if I'm looking at these situations and attaching this level of risk, which isn't how civilians do life at all, what else is going on? Is there a level of or layer of fear here as well? And is that fear keeping me from doing this thing? And if it is there, I need to address this and smash through that fear and do that very thing in many different ways of, of my life at that time. So I have a very different story to you. I went through a whole bunch of stuff with, uh, with work. Won't get into that either. But the, the theme is very much there for both of us, right? The challenge or the, the, the fruit from the tree is very much there. When we, I'm going to go back to this, this thought that you have of your risk assessments and how it was actually inhibiting good business decisions or movement. Was there also a layer of fear there too, somehow subconsciously for you that you knew you needed to walk through? Yeah. I mean, I think to say that there isn't, and, and I don't know if fear describes it, but I would say apprehension at the very least. Uh, I'm not an overly sort of emotional type when it comes to business, especially I generally will three, uh, treat business or even in the business of tactical operation, sort of a mathematical equation, right? Like, so it's more about numbers, crunching down numbers. And, and so I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say, and per perhaps on a, on some level, subconsciously, there is an associated apprehension there, but I definitely didn't feel it, um, in a sense of any sort of debilitating, mechanisms that was impeding my moving forward it's it's all i knew for the you know because essentially i spent my entire adult life institutionalized and conducting risk assessment on things so i just became even though i'm a risk taker in the context of those that do exactly what we did when you move to the business world, you realize that if there's no physical harm or the people that are, are risk assessing have never been faced with the risk of physical harm, they're a lot more riskier. They will take a lot more risk. And, uh, and, and, and I think that that's what the issue was for me. It was more, it was more directly correlated and associated to my regular process of risk assessing, which isn't at all um, the, the best course of action for business. It just isn't. Fear and apprehension, uh, again, we can exchange those words for whatever whatever the roadblock is for you. This is a conversation to help paint a picture of how uh, many of us, when we leave the RCMP or even in life, these are just certain life skills that we need to develop as we get older that, you know, the way that we've been taught uh, in order to approach, say, a problem or a situation may actually not be the best for us. Now, this is where I would like to go is as we're talking about this very topic and we're talking about kind of this institutionalized uh, idea of always attaching risk to something and whether or not we do something a certain way, uh, there might be an underlying fear or apprehension of that movement forward. But what about failure? Failure is a very interesting topic too when we look at these two different uh, types of approaches, uh, say to a problem where you take a, you know, say an RCMP officer who's going through this very thing where they're constantly doing the risk assessments and maybe not doing as much to now you're in the business world where you're now allowing yourself to 
be say vulnerable for one to maybe not have the answers to take those steps forward but you're doing it and you're saying okay if this is a failure it's okay i'm going to make this decision we're going to move forward we're going to try it much like throwing the wet noodle on the wall it doesn't stick now when you think about failure what does that evoke for you for thought when you're comparing those two worlds and where you're at now yeah i have a very sort of specific way of addressing failure on account of the fact that I was surrounded by it so much. All the units I was in, for the most part, at the very least for 15, 16, almost 17 years of my career were had very elevated attrition rates. All the courses I was on had very elevated attrition rates. We, you know, I've been on courses where we started with 36 people and 13 graduated. And so for me and for the people and for those like me that were surrounded by failure at all times, we knew that we had lost a lot of our peers that were equally as good as we were. And, and the funny, the funny thing is some of these people, you know, may have failed by, you know, a, a quarter of a second on an evolution or whatever the case may be, some very, very minute uh, ways of being sort of extracted out of the process. And for us, if you were to ask me, would you have taken this person with you anywhere the answer is yes, I would have. I would have taken that person with me anywhere. And so I think when you do hard things, surrounded by people that love to do hard things, you get really used to failure. And it seems to be the people that shelter themselves against failure that have a big problem with failure. And we see it in the special operation world when selections come around and there is a long tracking history of these studs that are coming in to do the selection process, you know, uh, water polo, varsity captains and this and that never failed anything, never, never even remotely close to struggle with anything. And next thing you know, they, they fail an evolution and they quit, they drop on request. And the question is always why, why are these guys dropping on request? Like they, they just quit on the first evolution and there's an entire seven days or seven or seven weeks or whatever the case may be that they can still overcome and, 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 and be successful. But yet they are so, they are so foreign to the idea of failure that it destabilizes them mentally and emotionally. And it just, they can't hack it. And it's very, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because everything worth doing is worth overdoing. And when you are doing it, you are going to risk failure. And if you do fail, then you pick it back up and you start again or you do something else. It, it depends, you know, how, how, how invested you were in the first place. But failure was never seen as something negative for us. It, it, although we evidently, we, we didn't want it because we wanted to be able to do the job that we wanted, to, we set forth to do. But having somebody to my left and right fail never made me judge them. But I think when you're not used to failure, what's happening, and I think a lot of people fear failure because they themselves are judgmental to others when they do fail. So now they're sort of projecting that onto others if failure comes their way. Yeah, I have to agree. And I mean, even going through a few failures on my own uh, as I was leaving the Mounties and launching a few different business endeavors, every time I failed, I told myself that uh, even though it may have stung and it cost some money, uh, 
that I was still headed on the right path and I needed to continue to explore this. Now, have I always handled failure that way? No, I haven't. I've learned to handle failure that way. Uh, And I do think it's a really important skill in life to learn that failure really isn't something that we should be ashamed of. And most times when we go through failure, we tend to think that others are judging us uh, in that moment and that we're not as equal as the next person. Uh, and I like how you touch on too how the fact that you you also approached failure when you saw others go through it uh, and you still accepted them and gave them that support. We tend to be very hard on ourselves, I think, when we go through moments of failure and we really need to shift that and just recognize that all failure is doing is telling you that you weren't ready for something in this moment and you need to go back and you need to do a little bit more work on yourself, whatever it is, and come back to that drawing board. That is the discomfort that is worth chasing in life. Don't let yourself meet failure and then run away from that task. Keep pursuing it until you can accomplish it. It's a great goal to have and anyone can do this. Now, for you, as you're going through this and you're seeing failure uh, from the perspective of where you're at, what does failure look like to you now in the business world? This is a fillion. And how are you managing that failure? Well, thankfully, I haven't experienced, you know, uh, failure in a business world here uh, so much as, yeah, I failed on on some some events or some things that I was initially s- setting forth to do or anything like that. But for me, here's how I process things. Um, I look at it. What is the mission? And the mission is the end goal of whatever you set forth to do. The mission execution is whatever way you're going to make that accomplished or you're going to accomplish that. And so for me, you need to have inflexible mission statement and you need to have flexible mission execution, right? And so if I'm doing something that pulls in a certain direction, which is in line with the mission that I set forth to do, anything that I fail along the way is just a readjustment of my mission execution. So there's no real failure on that. It's simply a readjustment a re, a, you know, and, and, and get back on track and, 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 or take the different track or get off the tracks and start walking <laughs> and just, just make sure that I can, that I can actually, um, action some, some things differently so that I may reach the goal that I set forth for myself. And I think too, as we go through the later stages of life and say, we're now kind of trying to become more entrepreneurial there, there are kind of different failures that happen now in this world. And I'm seeing them too, where, uh, as I'm going down the journey of, you know, launching certain businesses and trying to explore what those services look like outside of policing, I see almost like kind of micro failures and they're not necessarily, and this is kind of what I like how you approach this is you approached it more from the angle of these are slight derailments, not necessarily failures. And all it is, is it's just a moment in time where you might be approaching something that maybe isn't the best way. So you're getting that immediate feedback from whether it's clients or whoever you're trying to help. Hey, nudge, certainly just just off back towards the track, right? And our approach actually usually tends to not always be the best. But when we actually are engaged with someone we are trying to serve and we're listening to their needs, they can actually help us find that right track and maybe navigate some of those slight derailments that happen in the business world. Uh, So very, very important aspect to learning and growing beyond uh, where we've both come from in life to ensuring that we continue to move forward. Now, living in the box, this was something that was massive for me as well and such an incredible piece to talk about. 
I think for many people that leave the RCMP, I think a lot of people continue to stay stuck in that world of living in the box, thinking that the world is black and white, and it causes a lot of issues. Where I tend to see a lot of people succeed is they they leave the world of policing. Now, mind you, if we're still in the world of policing right now, we're still talking about that. Living in the box is very much a, a thing that is needed, right? It's a way to actually keep us alive. Uh, there are certain tools and traits and coping mechanisms built within being a cop in our training that do actually help us. But when you get out into the real world, they actually don't serve us as well anymore. So we have to learn to Uh, get out of that box. Now, when you think about stepping out of that box, that train of thinking, your creative ability. This is one thing that I found for myself that really started to flourish was I didn't have a whole lot of creative ability as a Mountie because everything was so structured. But when I left, I actually found that I had a massive amount of creative ability to me and my approach to business. And once I started to recognize that it was okay to step out of the box, that it was very much there and very much a skill set that I had and needed to explore. Did you find something like that as well? Yeah, I, you know what? I, I actually, I was a, in a bit of a different operating environment, right? Where, where f- free thinking and individual problem solving was prioritized over almost everything. And so in the unit, we very much wanted our people to think outside the box to problem solve issues that we had in, in any sort of ways, including in the tactical realm. And so, but what happens is, and what I found out is when I moved to the, the CEO's office and I started overseeing units doing work with their people, I started being able to identify the fact that that was rare, very rare. And so that was a big part of my revelation and my design of the um, introspective leader course and, and the, and the, a leadership through critical circumstances course that I also created as a result of seeing some of the mistakes that, in my opinions, leaders and managers were making in regular units. And so we see the same thing with the Canadian Special Operation sort of CANSOFCOM command, and then we're seeing it versus the traditional Canadian forces where there's a much more rigid, uh, you know, Sort of, and so you're seeing those two words, and it's exactly the same. It's no different, and 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 I can't impose this on everything on every team in the country, but certainly the Lower Mainland team was very much like that, and that was the culture of it. So, for the longest time, I didn't really appreciate it as much as I should have. I know people had the ability to think for themselves; they had, they definitely had the ability, and were encouraged to use creative creative thinking and uh, critical analysis to problem solve things in ways that we had never done before, perhaps, you know, and, and we were all over it. But when I moved out and realized how problematic that was in other units, I, I, I really wanted to sort of share some of that with them. So anyways, I'll leave it at that. And I'm not suggesting there wasn't any box. I'm just suggesting that it was at a lot, a lot lesser level than most units in the RCMP. So I was lucky that way, fortunate to be there for that but when i walked out of the um of the organization i literally took it upon myself to break down boxes and the way i did that was simply to critically analyze absolutely everything i do 
like everything, the way I think, the way I, the way I speak, the way I write, the way I read everything, you know, I even started reading, reading some books backwards, you know, for, <laughs> and this is, this is no word, no word of a lie. It was obviously it's an, ex, it's an, you know, uh, exercise of in futility, but it's an exercise to just, I wanted to shake off my brain and some of the cobwebs, some of the books that I really enjoyed reading over the years that I, that I read seven or eight times, I started with the ending. So I still, I still read from left to right, but I, I read from the, from the back and backwards. And I, I caught myself catching all these things along the way that I had missed, you know, on the first six times around. It's like, how does that even work? It's because we are operating on autopilot most of the time. And it's really, really doing things that are challenging that, that type of status quo that is absolutely critical. Give you an example of this, just a very recent example. A couple of days ago, I had an epiphany. I was just coming back from overseas. I was in a, I was in, in, in a let's call it a very dangerous area. And uh, it, it kind of poked me a little bit. It, it challenged you know, my, my inner beliefs on certain things. And, 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 and I woke up one morning and I was considering this. I'm like, listen... We've been told for so many years that over, like overthinking is, is a bad character trait. You know, overthinking is bad. Overthinking is bad. You're overthinking. You're overthinking. And everybody, even overthinker themselves, know that overthinking is somewhat impeding their ability. And it, it feeds right into what you said earlier, which is paralysis by analysis, right? And so I started, I started thinking, how many years have I heard and have I ever heard anybody say that overthinking was a positive thing? And the answer was, no, I never, I never have ever. And so then I started thinking, what about Albert Einstein? Was he not an overthinker? Like was he, or, or was he simply just a thinker? So what is the difference between somebody that spends their entire time thinking and critically ana analyzing their thought process and creating other ways and pathways to certain problem solving abilities by way of like, introspecting and exploring and using external and internal factors and all those things and having the ability to action some of those things is the difference between an overthinker and somebody that thinks a lot but does so essentially you spin your wheels you spin your wheels you spin your wheels you don't do anything about it you just spin your wheels you spin your wheels you spin your wheels you spin your wheels and you cough up something right so i came to the conclusion and whether it's a hypothesis that's you know, corroborated or not, and more research would be needed in that. But I can tell you this, if a person is an overthinker by nature and their entire life, they've been told they're an overthinker and that's a bad thing. How much harm does that actually does do to them as humans and as, and as human beings in, in, in the sense of impeding their, the extrapolation of their potential? Because what we need to be teaching them then is a completely different thing. It's okay to be overthinking, but you need to be taking actions. So you need to, you need to, you know, so it becomes a symptomology as opposed to something that's negative. What do you do with your overthinking is the actual problem, not the overthinking itself. And again, none of this is verified, but it's a conversation, right? And so those are the types of things that I spent my time doing, questioning everything, you know, on top of obviously actioning things that I was wanting to, to experience and, and do. I like how you touched on too, the fact that overthinking is, I love Jocko too, for this Jocko's approach to everything. And I've, I've kind of tried to take this with me everywhere I go is that there's no problems. Everything that happens to you is good. 
He always mm-hmm. says that everything that mm-hmm. good, you know, this thing just happened to you. Good. You know, you just get cancer. Good. Get through it. And it's like, like at first you're like, when you first hear this, you're like, what is this guy talking about? But this is very much also true with the term of overthinking. I think a lot of us do need to do this, but the, the part of taking action is that crucial step that I think a lot of us miss. Precisely. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to feed into it as well in line with what you're saying is overthinking even a thing. So if you are thinking a lot and you are creating or you're thinking a lot and you're actioning things, are you now overthinking or you're simply thinking, you know, it, it's kind of like, is a, if you wear a Hawaiian shirt in a Hawaii, is it just a shirt? You know, it's kind of the, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a, it's a micro box within the micro environment, you know, uh, the macro environment rather. So now even having that conversation, maybe overthinking, if you're not doing it in a way that's negative, it it may not even be overthinking. I don't know, but I, you know, it's, it's really interesting. What Jocko is actually saying is this, anything that happens that you, that is outside your sphere of influence you absolutely do should not spend any time dwelling on it if it's outside your sphere of influence so there's there's three ranges right it's either in your span of influence you either have some influence over or you have zero influence over it so if you have something in your span of of, of control and your span of influence then do something about it don't spend your time whining and sniveling and complaining don't be a victim kill the victim as i like to say when you when you are um, it, when you have some influence over something, but that something is requires your expertise or requires you to be able to address it and you want to bring it into your span of control, if there is a way to do that, by all means, do it. If there isn't, then you have to have a control amount of energy invested in it because otherwise you're going to start tapping into your resor- your resources and your sort of reserves and, and that's going to prevent you from having the ability to deal with something that's completely outside your your sphere of influence. So if something is completely outside your sphere of influence and you already make peace with the fact that that is inherently going to happen in life, then what? There is no sense in dwelling on it at all. It's not going to do anything constructive whatsoever. So the idea is how do I move forward and what do I take out of it right now? You know, not later. And so it's an attitude change. It's a mindset change. Jocko, metaphorically speaking about good, not uh, not evidently suggesting that getting diagnosed with cancer is good, not being suggested that getting fired is good or not getting the promotion is good. That is not what he is saying. And I know you understand that, obviously, but it's important we have that conversation because some people might not. What Jocko is actually saying is it's good because it challenges you. And, it, and on the other side of a challenge is growth. And that is the main concept of it. So for a long time in my life, years ago, I looked at this very situation. And I'll break this down even further, uh, this, this construct of good that we're looking at. I looked at problems as something that should not happen in my life, right? If I could lead a life that had a lesser amount of problems, I was somehow going in the right direction, right? And now what I actually have realized was that was the worst approach. And now I'm allowing myself to encounter problems, but not let them impact me the same way, but look at them in the way where I say, okay, this is actually an opportunity for growth. And where is the healthy solution here? Let's pursue that and stop focusing on the problem immediately. It's come in, we know what it is, we've done the assessment on it, whatever it is, we got to pivot. Now let's go forward. 
So it's almost a preemptive, let's, let's take action now. And that's the other thing too, with problems is I think as a young man, I thought that problems were a bad thing. No, they're not. They're a great thing for you. Embrace them. Yeah. Adversity creates growth, man. And, and it does it exponentially faster than being comfortable. And that is a fact. Also a fact is that life is finite. There is an end to this. Death isn't the end of life. It's part of it. If you make peace with the worst prospect that you can possibly imagine, which is losing your life, you make peace with everything that happens in between. And I've made peace with that prospect so long ago, I can't even remember how long ago it was, but I was very young and I was at peace to go any day. And, and this might sound excessive for some people, but it helped me massively in my life. It's like, accept the prospect of the worst day you could possibly have, which is the fact that death is absolutely unavoidable. And so you're absolutely right. The punch that you prepare for is better than the punch that you pretend doesn't exist. And then you get hit by it or that you hope you won't get hit. It's, it's not going to happen. So the idea is this. I don't want people, myself included, to be good at taking a massive hit. I want people to be good at taking endless hits. And you can. And it takes practice. And it takes time. And it takes perspective. And it takes a variety of different tools that you need to develop over time. Under fire. you know. And when I say under fire, I mean metaphorically under fire. So do hard things and get yourself in a place where adversity becomes a regular daily activity. And you will see, you will reap major benefit from that. But it is counterintuitive because we as humans are trying to stay safe. Ultimately, survival is our main driven, you know, our, our sort of biologically driven mechanisms. And it's it's difficult, but it has to be done. It's very, very beneficial. I want to, uh, there's two things that are popping up in the moment here, this conversation about death, and I'm not quite sure where to go right now in the moment, uh, but we'll, we'll actually stick with the conversation piece about death and how we find peace with this thought that yes, life will end for all of us. And it is just a fact of life. Uh, before we go down that road though, I do want to come back to critical thinking though. So please nudge me back there uh, mm -hmm. after this, but the, the thought of this moment where you make peace with the moment in life where you are going to receive the news or head in the direction that life is over, what catapulted you to this, this moment now where this isn't an issue, but you knew you needed to recognize it and walk through accepting when this news may come? Yeah, so I mean, by virtue of the the, the work that I decided to do, it was an inherent part of it, right? I needed to be, I need to get right with that prospect. I mean, so for me, it was professionally induced, but I have seen others successfully do the, the exact same. And at the end of the day, humans need a purpose. We need, we need a purpose. We need, and the purpose is within us. The purpose isn't something that's going to, you know, miraculously sort of manifest itself. We need to be, we need to be seeking it it's not an an external thing. People are like, I can't wait for my purse to be my purpose to be revealed to me. No, no, no. Your purpose is within you. You need to be doing in, the introspection necessary to find what that purpose is. So I will tell you this: for me, 
anything that helps the collective negotiate with the difficulties of life and difficulties in general, including, you know, safety and harm and all the things that are extremely egregious in, in people's lives. I love to have a positive impact, even if it's a very, very small one in some measure to try to help them negotiate that. And one of the ways to do that is to model behaviors. Modeling behaviors teaches more than all the words you speak. It's that simple. You can be the biggest influencer in the world, but if adversity never hits you in the public eye, nobody actually knows how you are going to react when it happens. And that's notwithstanding what you have already endured that nobody knows anything about, but they only see the tip of the iceberg. At the end of the day, we have a civic and collective humanity-related responsibility to help others negotiate the difficulties of life. And it's the best gift you can give to anyone. And for me, the way I face adversity teaches people something that will help them massively when adversity hits them. It doesn't have to destroy you. It doesn't have to take everything away from you. It doesn't have to be the worst day of your life. And so for me, if the prospect, once I made peace with the fact that if the prospect of death comes to me and I have an opportunity to be strong in the face of it, I will leave a much stronger message to those that I loved and cared about than if I fold like a, like a, like a, you know, a cheap house of card and, and let myself crumble because what I have actually done is now exemplified the opposite behavior, which now will feed into people's already knowing, like, if this happens to me, I would lose my mind or I would, you know, I would, I wouldn't know what to do. And there's a saying that says, you don't know how strong you are until strong is the only choice you have. Well, it's, it's a very accurate statement. However, you can also look at somebody else that's been through something before and gain perspective. And we know that perspective drives hope and hope drives survivability. So for me, to make a, you know, a, complicated, a complicated answer simple, I feel it is my purpose to be strong to teach others. Okay? And when I say be strong, I don't mean be infallible. Don't get me wrong here. And it's not about like not needing help or whatever the case may be. It's not about any of that. But in the face of the, the ultimate adversary of life, which is death, I will be as strong as I can possibly be to send a strong message to everybody left behind that it's the only way to go. Address it with a, with a warrior ethos. And that's a warrior without, you can be a librarian and be a warrior at mind. Like you don't need to be a, you don't, you don't need to be engaged in a war per se to be a warrior. Having that warrior mindset is a, is an extremely, is an extremely valuable way to address adversity. Here's a question I had for you too, because I think we get caught up in this too, the cyclical thought patterns that can happen in certain moments where we're thinking about something and now we're thinking about it too much. How do you find that you catch yourself in the moment where you're saying, okay, now I'm thinking about this too aggressively, or it's becoming a cyclical thought pattern. Uh, what do I need to challenge myself in the moment to kind of slow down on in order to promote a healthy way of thinking, but also promote a healthy way of encouraging action to be taken here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's how I, this is what I do with my client generally, if they have a tendency to do that is I, I will say to them, what happens when you are trying to sleep at night and all you focus on is sleeping? You know, it, it doesn't happen. 
and it will never happen. It does, the brain doesn't work like that because unfortunately, we, the brain spotlights things. And if you are concerned with something, regardless how egregious it is for your physical safety, the brain will spotlight it and magnify the risk associated with it. So you're actually working, it works the other way that you think it should. So if you're, you're, you're like, you know, um, I, I, my, I, I need to sleep, I need to sleep, I need to sleep. And you build a, a tiny bit of anxiety with respect to the fact that you need to sleep because you're getting up early in the morning or whatever the case may be. Then your brain spotlights the risk and basically sends into full gear your defense mechanisms. So now you have adrenaline, you know, running through your bodies. You have a variety of different hormones. So there's some physiological things that are happening, but there's also some some psychological things that are happening. And so it just compounds the problem. And it, it was Patton that said, the person who flanks first wins. And that works for you as well. You can flank your brain and your body into doing other things. And we know that you can, you know, you can start reading, you can start thinking about something that's completely irrelevant, whatever the case may be, but eventually you will fall asleep, but you need to get the focus off of the, so if I target focus, which is exactly what I call it, like if you're target fixated on something, the chances of you actually accomplishing anything productive is very, very slim. And so you need to, you need to reallocate that energy to create a different thought pattern that may or may not have anything to do with it, but will allow you to come back without your brain spotlighting the risk associated with what you're doing. So I'll give you another example of this. The people that are, uh, know that they should be working out, know that they should be doing physical activity, but somehow they, they will always talk themselves out of doing it for whatever reason. So it's that reason and this other reason. And well, that's exactly what happens. It creates a certain level of uncomfortableness. And when it happens, the brain spotlight the risk. And now they will actually fabricate and conjure up reasons as to not as to why not do it on account of, well, actually, I should be studying. I should be doing this. I should be. They will reprioritize their life and do all kinds of stuff in order to satisfy the fact that they shouldn't be working out. So what I do with my clients is I will say, take your gym gear, put it on and go for a walk. That's all I'm asking you to do. Go for a walk outside or walk to the gym. When you get to the gym, if you don't feel like doing anything, turn around. Guess what happens, right? Evidently, they go for a walk. They listen to some music, perhaps. They got a little bit of motivation going. Now they're already out of the house and they're already you know, going somewhere. So now the level of comfort is higher. They get inside the gym now. Well, I'm already here and I feel nice and warm and I actually feel pretty good right now. So I can do a workout, you know? So they essentially flank their brain into doing whatever it is that they know they should be doing, but that they were somehow spotlighting and, and, and preventing themselves from doing it. So those are all little things that we could use. Those are tools to, 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 to flank our brain into accomplishing the task that we set forth to do. Now, to come back to overthinking, uh, which is something that for me is still a very much kind of a, there's a mind-body connection here that happens with overthinking. And we, we loosely touched on it here where you thought, you thought about and you talked about this thought process of how it actually starts to trigger off a defense mechanism possibly in the body, whether it's anxiety or different emotions that might spark up because of your view or your thought process of overthinking something and not taking the action. 
And one of the things too, that really happens well, that's really fascinating for me that happens is when we do have that moment where we're overthinking, the body now gives us that feedback too, that there's something going on when in reality, there's nothing going on. You're in a safe environment. There's nothing going on, but somehow the body feels anxious or tight and you get this feedback of, oh, I don't feel good to go to the gym right? I don't feel relaxed. So what other tools do you have for people that help the, them not only challenge the mind, but the body as well to diffuse what the body may be going through? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here, right? The, the concept of comfort and feeling wanting to do something is, is a little bit misleading. I, I never feel like training. You know, it, it hurts, right? Like, because I know I'm going to push and I know I'm going to push the boundaries. And yes, I'm not the guy I used to be because I'm much older and I'm injured and all these things, but I still go out and do as much as I can. And I really definitely try to stay in the uncomfortable zone all the time. Um, but I think for, for a person to go, to go out on their shield and essentially accept the fact that this is a part of the growth process. So now you're associating a purpose to it, right? You're associating a clear purpose to it. This is difficult. And because it is difficult, it makes me better every day I do it. So here's the thing. Everybody's looking at results. It's, it's the same with martial arts or jiu-jitsu or whatever the case may be. Oh, I, I talk to people sometimes. They haven't spent a single day on the mat. They're like, how long does it take to get a black belt? What do you care? Like, what do you care? You know, like, what do you care? Why don't, why don't you, let, let me ask, let me, let me, let me tell you how long it's going to take you to be better than today. One day, you know, put it, put it on the line today on the mats and tomorrow you'll be a better guy than you were yesterday. And the day after you'll be a better guy than you were the day before and today. And so, and as the days are going by like this, you are becoming a better version of yourself. That is a massive win. That is a massive, massive win. And it's an incremental way of going exactly where you want to go by putting in the work and doing it daily. And so you have to tie that purpose when you know the physical activity is beneficial for you in, in terms of regulating hormones, your mindset, changing your focus, getting muscles involved, getting oxygenation going, you know, blood flow, and the list goes on and on. I mean, this is all peer peer-reviewed and documented evidence supporting that anything that's bad in life is 10 times worse if you're out of shape, period. Like if your physicality starts breaking down along with the ice, and then there's so many psychosomatic things that are occurring, which is essentially you are going to make your body worse by focusing on certain areas in your mind. And it has the ability to impact, it manifests itself in your body. So we know that generally speaking, and this is not like you don't have to be an Olympic athlete, but you need, you need to invest in your physical wellness. You need to, and it's going to help you massively, whether you feel like doing it or not, it, notwithstanding, it absolutely doesn't change anything to the fact that it will help you. That's a, a given fact. If you accept that as a reality, and if you accept that as incontrovertible truth, so to speak, you are going to have an easier time motivating in doing things. Motivation fades. We know you need self-discipline and those things are all great concepts, but it takes time to develop self-discipline. So it's important to, to start with a degree of motivation. I don't, I disagree that motivation is completely useless. It's not. It has its, it has its, its, um, its place and time. So for me, it's more about managing what do I know and logically override what my emotional response to the stimuli is? Logically override it. 
I logically override it by saying, I know that I don't feel like doing it right now. Perhaps I'm not knowledgeable enough. Perhaps I get nauseous sometimes when I train, or perhaps um, I just don't like the environment because I generally am an introvert and I don't really like to be around people, especially if I have to expose perhaps some of my perceived weakness or the way I look or whatever the case may be. But all those things, if I do them all combined, you have taken a giant and a massive step towards getting better than you were yesterday. And if I gave you the option of being better than you were yesterday or getting worse incrementally every day, which is exactly what's going to happen if you don't, what do you pick? It becomes, you, you know, it becomes easy. It becomes easier, not easy. It becomes easier to motivate. The, the concept too of time, let's switch back to time versus money. Another challenge that you went through where you had that immediate feedback where you were giving up an hour of your time and receiving money uh, now as an employee of the federal government. And now that you're in this, this situation in life where that, that relationship no longer is there for you, you're now a business owner uh, on your own endeavor and you have to put a lot of time and effort into certain aspects of the business uh, and be there for the right reasons to serve without expectation. But that does eventually translate into opportunity for you. How are you, how are you and where are you at now with this approach to making sure that your time is appropriately spent on the things that will give you what you need to continue to move forward? So as I like to say it, and I've said it ad nauseum is I love to do meaningful things with meaningful people. I'm less about the f chasing the financial dragon, and I know you're not either, so I'm not, certainly not suggesting that that's what happens, but it does happen, and a lot of people do that. They will, be they will be chasing the financial dragon, and when you're chasing money, you are doing it wrong. You need to chase your, you need to chase your passion, provided that it's not just solely based on creative juices. You need to have a framework around how you are going to um, chase that passion and and what can you bring that that is of value so that you may eventually monetize certain things that you are doing and that you are good at and in whatever field of endeavor and so i would be disingenuous to say i never think about money because if you don't guess what you'll end up in policing in no time again right seb seb would be back there i mean that's just a fact so i have to think about it but i also i'm not chasing it I know it will come. I invest where I need where it, where I need to be investing. Here's another interesting concept that ties kind of into this, but also a little bit left field. I, there's some absolutely astro astronomical um, statistic about people that are millionaires having millionaire friends, and it is absolutely undeniable that that's the case. The majority of millionaires have millionaire friends. How does that happen and why? Now we're starting to feed in the concept of synergy. And so how many of the people around you are actually not contributing to you be being better or being the best version of yourself or challenging you in positive ways or helping you grow by way of inspiring themselves or whatever the case may be? And so what, what we, what you and I spoke about earlier is that when you get to your forties, you know, or, or whatever, you know, close to you, you, you end up, you end up starting to see those things. 
But what, what we all do at 40 is we say, I wish I understood that when I was 20. Because if you did, you would have spent an extra 20 years benefiting from this <laughs> instead of, you know, and ultimately we don't know what, what our timestamp is. So perhaps I'll benefit for 40 years. I don't know, but perhaps I won't. But at the end of the day, who you surround yourself with is critical in the pursuit of your of your goals. And that's all goals. And if there is leeches, as I like to call them, that suck the life out of you by way of their actions or their negativity or their even their insecurities or whatever the case may be, they need to either be given an opportunity to bring their game up or cut out of your life. And that's a tough thing to do because sometimes those people are spouses or family members or whatever. So, so it can be a very difficult thing to do. But at the end of the day, a decision has to be made here. If I, if I am to optimize the person that I can be, I'm going to need to cut the weight that's weighing me down. And that's a, a very difficult thing to do, but it has, it has to be done. Obviously for you, this mental health walk that's been seeing such significant success how did you land on the fact that we understand the concept of serving without expectation? That's the best thing that we can do in our lives. We do that as police officers. And then when we leave, we actually take what we have and we now do this elsewhere. Uh, and hopefully we do this in, a, in an honest way where we're not chasing money, but we're actually trying to make the world a better place. I think most of us are doing that. But how did you end up on this idea now that you're going to actually serve people on Sundays and go for an hour, hour and a half walk with people that are going through some of the hardest struggles of their lives and build them back up. Yeah, man, I'm adamantly opposed to deflection. I, I, I will catch myself if I catch myself deflecting on anything. And I can give you examples of this right, right after I'm kind of done speaking to the base premise. But if I catch myself deflecting, it's immediately addressed and I am not gentle. You're going to stop that and you're going to stop it yesterday. You're going to stop complaining about who's not doing what for who and who hasn't done this and who hasn't done that. I killed a victim a long time ago. There is no victim in me. Everything that happens in my life is as a result of what I do, period. And whether or not that's actually the case doesn't matter because for the infinitesimal parts that are going to be created by external factors, I'm going to create so much harm on myself by thinking that it's occurring that I don't even want to spend time there at all. And so for me, when I look at wellness and when I look, I know what worked great for me and how I managed to stay healthy through thousands of tactical operations I have and, and help my guys do the same. I think for me, instead of looking at it, who's doing what about our members' wellness or who's doing what about people's wellness in general, I want to bring those tools and bring it back to the people themselves. You have a lot more ability to impact your own wellness that you give yourself credit for. And that is absolutely true. And so people often ask me like, who did you, who did you, you know, tap into when you, when you were going through your medical ordeal or whatever the case may be, I'm like, I self-rescued pal. I did. And this is how I did it. Okay. And I'm not suggesting that sometimes you don't need some extra help and all this stuff, because if you don't have those mechanisms in place worked over years, it's going to be very hard to enact them. So I understand that. And that's cool. That's good. You have to take the help where you need it. But eventually the goal should be to be able to help yourself when things are going wrong. That is the ultimate goal. And so for me, 
instead of saying who's not doing what for these guys or who's who's not taking care of them, I'm like, what am I actually doing to promote wellness around me? What am I doing to promote wellness in the universe? What am I doing? I have all this skill set and I have all those things that I've that have worked great over the course of an entire career. And now I'm going to go home and go, well, that sucks to be you. I'm good to go. Right. So I wouldn't have that. Simply wouldn't. I can't. I just cannot. And so what I do is I wanted to bring an actionable piece. I wanted to bring the endless documented benefits of being in nature and connecting with nature and doing all this good stuff. But also I wanted to bring a little piece of the actionable item at each of the walks so that the person, every time they show up, they learn a new coping mechanisms in dealing with certain things within this, their sphere of influence. And so the goal was if a person is regular, which they should, because you should be out in nature. I mean, this, this concept of urban living is like completely foreign to human sort of, you know, baseline, essentially. Um, now, a person that showed up for eight or nine of the walks, they've had, they've been given nine different things that they can spend two weeks practicing, enacting, rehearsing, thinking about, contemplating, doing all those things. And then they come back in two weeks and they have a fresh slate and they're a different person. They're a better person than they were last time because now they have this added little piece that they can put into their arsenal to help themselves. And then I give them another one or somebody else does. Maybe it's Nathan, maybe it's, maybe it's Steve, whatever. Right. And so at the end of the day, imagine if you spend two years going on mental health walk every two weeks and, and that's, you know, 22 weeks a year, that's 44 different ways of addressing your wellness that you have been taught. If you are not doing that in two years, what do you have to show for? You're going to be the exact same person, exact same person, except it is likely that your struggles will be compounded by other issues. Either life will hit you again, or you are going to be physically unfit, or you're going to get physically unwell by way of an illness or whatever the case may be, because it happens. And so now you're, gonna, you're looking at a compounding, like time doesn't make things better all the time. Times often will make things worse, especially if we look at it in the broad concept of life. The older you get, evidently, the more things you'll experience, right? And so for me, it was all about taking responsibility of doing something for the collective that was meaningful and actionable. I'm an wheel-to-the-pavement type guy. I am not an academic. I am an academic that has operationalized his academic knowledge is what I like to consider myself as. But what are, what are some of the things that you're, you're getting back now from this group, the, the feedback of where are people and what is the growth that you're seeing from these individuals now? Cause you probably almost have a year now under your belt of doing these mental health walks. Yeah, we have a, exactly a year actually, which is, which is absolutely uh, is great. Uh, there's a few things I want to touch on. So you mentioned, you know, like, why would I continue serving civilians? The civilians were the people that I was dealing with all the times and all this stuff. And I think there's a, there's a separation to be made here. First of all, we have that professionally induced cynicism that comes as being police officers for too long. But one of the problems that we have is we dealt a hundred percent of the time with a one percenter, you know, and, and, and that creates the appearance that, a hundred percent of people are the way that we are one percenters were. And it is absolutely not the case. It just so happened that your job was to be dealing with the worst people in society and that you've extrapolated the fact that, well, if that's the case and these people are everywhere, therefore everybody's that way. 
And it absolutely couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be further from the truth. It's a very small minority that's like that. Now, everybody's humans and people make mistakes. And we understand that. That includes us. But in terms of the, the gravity or the seriousness or the egregious nature of the behaviors that we dealt with throughout our careers, that is a very small percentage of people that do that. So let's put that aside and understand that the, the world is full of good people, that the media leeches will jump all over the bad press and the bad people and the bad and anything that's, you know, causing a reaction in people and makes people purchase newspaper or whatever the case may be. Um, but with that, there is a psychologically, and there's no really re real theoretical axe to grind with this concept, but in the world of clinical psychology, one of the things that's very well known is the fact that when humans focus on themselves too much, it creates the more, the most uh, level of anxiety. So if people start focusing on self too much, their anxiety and their negative bias associated with their self-image, especially considering that most humans have self-image issues, you know, over time as a result of whatever their circumstances were, it actually compounds issues to spend too much time thinking about. So it's important that you spend the time dealing with the things that are afflicting you, whatever the case may be, but you have to do it in a productive and constructive way. If you stay at home and you are stewing into your own self, you are compounding issues. It's a vicious cycle you'll never come out of. Okay. So one of the, one of the key pieces, again, in line with what I was saying about flanking the brain earlier is to go out and do something in the collective and for the collective. And now what happens is your brain is no longer spotlighting and you can start addressing some of the things that you were trying to address before, but created a reaction in you. You are less defensive to it. Your defense mechanisms are not nearly as kicking in nearly as strongly. And that allows you to be able to do that. And so there is a measure of self-service in that. And I would be disingenuous if I said it wasn't the case. For me, I took some a, a very... Uh, gratification didn't come by way of recognition for me. Gratification came by way of actually feeling like I made a difference on a call, that I made a difference for my peers, that I made a difference. That is all I cared about during my service. I didn't care about saving the world. I knew this was a lost, like you couldn't possibly accomplish that, even if you were you know, the best cop the world has ever seen. Because you're going to be faced with bureaucratic red tape, you're going to be faced with certain things, and you're going to get, it's easy to get disillusioned. But you have to take your focus back. How, do, how have I made my partners, my peers, my subordinates, the people I work with, my bosses feel when I was with them? Like, is that a, a gratification? Was that a gratification piece in, in the context of my career? And absolutely it was. So for me, helping others in the context of the mental health walk gives me an incredible level of self-gratification. So I couldn't say, well, no, it's not, it, you know, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm just like totally selfless. I do it for everybody else. I am doing it for everybody else, but it brings me gratification. It brings me meaning. It brings me purpose. And so that is one of the, I would say the secondary reason why I love to do it. Now, in terms of how this uh, sort of impacted the life of those that have been coming for a year, I have seen some incredible changes. And I will, I will go, I will go ahead and step on the, you know, step ahead of the line here and say, I have seen incredible changes in people that never thought they could and people that have sought professional help and people that have went to PTSD and occupational stress injury clinics and people, and I have seen more 
you know, they have seen more out of coming regularly to the walks and doing something so seemingly simple that it's being discounted all the time as being the, the precursor or the, or the, 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 the trigger. So no pun intended to them having the ability to manage everyday life and be in a good place. I'm not talking about surviving. I'm talking about thriving. If you compare that to how they were living life before, you know, cause the baseline is always you. And I'm not, I'm not concerned about everybody else. How do I feel about myself? How do I feel about how I felt last year? And what am I now? You know, so everybody has a different line as to and, and a different meaning of what being happy means. But generally, being happy means this, not be mediocre or not be miserable. <laughs> right. That's generally like a, a, that's not very contentious. You don't want your life to be miserable. Now, if you go too far the other way, which is some of the issues with some of the systems like the stoicism or, you know, really disconnecting emotions from logical thinking at absolutely all times, all you are going to do is avoid hurt, but you are never going to experience joy, you know? So you're kind of staying in that, in that really, really, so it's important to have a balanced approach to this. You know, you have your human connection, you, you allow yourself to live an emotional an emotionally uh, engaged life, but you also have the ability to logically override the emotions that become overbearing. So it's a measured approach to this. And the problem with humans is we live in extremes. It's either black or white. There's no shades of gray, except life is all shades of gray. So it's, it, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that piece that we need to kind of reconcile with. Community connection and conversation the cure to life. Now, I'm not going to be hard on, say, traditional forms of getting help, i.e. psychologists, OSI. Uh, I think those are definitely very valuable tools for people that have an immense amount of struggle and are searching for an option and maybe aren't yet ready to walk out into and be embraced by a group of people. Really, that's what's going on. Uh, but I have learned that even through my own journey, when I went through a significant struggle, that OSI was good for me to start breaking down the armor. But at the same time, real growth really happened when I started to not only embrace this concept of vulnerability uh, in exposing kind of some of the struggle and what it looked like for myself, but now connecting with people in real world settings where you can, you can just simply be connected. And it's, it's such a, such a, for me, it was such a, bizarre journey to stumble on this this piece that helped me out the most but the piece that has helped me out the most has actually been removing this concept of selfishness or serving myself and always wanting to ensure that I'm focused on me but actually expressing it outwardly and that's exactly what you're doing I'm doing it here on the podcast uh any time that you can hopefully give the world what you've learned through your struggle, through your life, whatever the case may be, and hopefully aim for a better place. Uh, there's just so much amazing growth that comes from that space. I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. You're correct about the OSI and the, and, and definitely the, you know, the, the way I framed it wasn't ideal. Um, it, it is absolutely, those are very valuable tools, but imagine if those people 
had done that and started the mental health walk, you know, as soon as they were able to, I mean, it would have compounded their success and it would have probably exponentially increased the speed at which they reached certain benchmarks in their own lives. And I say benchmarks with, with reservations, obviously, and those are not tangible benchmarks, but self-imposed, right? Like I want to be here. I want to feel better. I want to do this or that. So yeah, those things are extremely valuable tools, especially if you have reached a point where you are, you are so far, so far sort of, um, in a in a hole that you that you cannot see the light at all, right? And so now you you have a bigger problem. There is an emergency here. You need you need some help to to be able to to see at least a little sliver of light. So then you can start edging the right direction because you don't even know where the, the top is and the bottom is now, right? So it's really important that that that's taken care of. And there's there's no there's no discrediting the professional services to do that. But there's nothing that stop you from starting. Now, another concept with this, and just before I forget, is the concept of, say, extrovert, introvert, and ambivert, right? Like we know that there's all kinds of, and there's a spectrum in between. And you can be an introvert and an, and, an, and an extrovert at the same time, which is called an ambivert. And you can be an extrovert that sometimes has introverted tendencies. And, you know, people, again, oversimplify the concept of that. But I will tell you one thing that absolutely certain humans need a feeling of belonging and they, they need to feel valued whether they're ambivert introvert or extrovert doesn't matter like that is a you know maslow pyramid identified that is a, a a basic human need and there is there is a way to achieve that in controlling the parameters that are less desirable so for you if you're an introvert and you don't really want you, you don't favor being in a group setting well here's what's going to happen you are going to prevent yourself from reaping the benefits of being in a group setting on account of the fact that you prefer being alone. But then once you have to go out on the real world, it's going to be without stress inoculation at all to this piece. So now you're going to compound the stress that you are actually feeling on account that you haven't done it in a controlled capacity. Anything that you can prepare for that you control the parameters on, i.e., are these people positive? Are these people pushing the same direction? Are these people doing, and which is the case in, in, the, in the case of the mental health walk, then you are subjecting yourself of potentially being ingrained in a, in a group that you really want no part of. And you will have no coping mechanisms for that because you haven't put the time to invest in developing them in a positive and constructive environment. And so there is benefits to taking anybody, whether you like to hang out with people or not, to get out of their comfort zone and come and do it. It's an hour. You can spend 23 hours locked up after that if you want. You know, you can do whatever you want. You can read, you can, you can do whatever by yourself. But I think it's important to recognize that. It absolutely is. We're social creatures. If you even dial this back to to how we have operated for thousands of years, you know, when we walked around with sticks or we were in that much more primitive era, what did we do? We ran with our people, our tribe. It was very small and we all served each other. And the success largely of the group was built off of how well you worked together as a team, period. Now, Absolutely. modern day society, what do we do? We jump in our cars, we drive around the city, we self-isolate or socially isolate. We don't want to say hi to our neighbors. And we think that going to work and punching in and punching out and going home and doing this doesn't have an impact on us. You need that social connection and it has to be rich. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the times, if you were to dive deep into the base 
reasons as to why people are not favoring contacts, generally speaking, it's associated with some sort of hurt. It's associated with either abandonment or, or betrayal or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so that means if something makes you uncomfortable and when I poke on it, it really bugs you, you need work there. You need work there. Like don't, don't shy away from that. Don't give yourself an out. Don't give yourself an out by saying, oh, I'm just an introvert. No, you're not an introvert. You're a very loving person that's put a lot of energy into people that disappointed you and hurt you. That's what happens, right? But by doing what you are doing right now, you are going to prevent not only the hurt that comes along with that, but you are going to prevent the joy associated with having truly loyal people in your life that will have a, a, an extremely positive impact. And, and again, it's, it's more about that not being hurt rather than being happy, right? And those two things. So for me, here's a way that I logically override that. I know humans will disappoint me. And I know humans will. And, and hopefully I don't disappoint anybody too much, but I also know that that's a prospect by way of, you know, doing something that I choose to do at the time or, or, or perhaps moving on from a relationship that's no longer serving, uh, you know, that's, that's no longer serving the purpose that, that, that I, that, that I needed to, or we needed to, or whatever the case may be, we toxic relationship, whatever, you know, at the end of the day, humans will disappoint. That's a fact. It is not the end of the world. It's not. Don't put your eggs all in the same basket. We also know you're going to die. We also know you're going to get hurt. We also know you're going to lose people. Like all those things. Are you going to bubble wrap yourself? And You can't because you're going to prevent a ton of joy on account of the things that are going to happen from time to time in your life that not only are going to impact you, but also going to make you better. So now you're, 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 you're basically, you know, doubly hurting yourself by preventing those things from happening. So, and, and the fact that you are trying to prevent them from happening is actually not going to prevent them from happening. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a very interesting concept, but. The other thing I want to touch on too, and this is kind of a thought that stems from what you were just talking about is as you, as you recognize in life that people will impact you in some way shape or form uh negatively in your life and it's it's up to you to decide and to figure out how you want to handle that now there's definitely a train of thought that comes up that's you know surrounding forgiveness or understanding the concepts of why people generally will be in a negative place in their life hurt people will hurt people now how do you how do you get past that initial piece and still allow yourself to have that uh that love or that compassion for that person uh even though they may not be aware of what they're doing yeah i mean there's a few key pieces here right first of all communication is something that humans in general are pretty horrible at so communicating with people generally will help problem solve some of the issues and maybe even clear up the air so have you ever heard of the 55, 38, seven rules? Like basically 7% of what a person perceives as what being said is actually spoken words. 38% is the tone in which you're speaking it. And 55% is what you look like when you do it. So really 93% of a conversation has nothing to do with what you're saying. So imagine how much, you, how much you're losing. So if you're able to even circumvent that just slightly, 
rise rise it up to 15% or 20% get better at your at your nonverbal communication get better at 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 controlling your tone and your emotions get so now you're you're starting to hit at the much higher levels which is m- much more likely to help in preventing conflict or or uh, misunder- misunderstanding by way of actually increasing your communication capabilities. But it's really easy to say humans are going to disappoint me. And that's just a fact. Humans are going to disappoint me. Here's a fact. You are going to disappoint other humans, right? And so let's take that victim mentality out again and let's take control of this. How am I as a human being and how can I make myself better so then when I do communicate, there's less chances of that happening? Can I actually do something about that? So imagine if you could raise that up to say 70% of the conversations you're having, people are getting, man, you have just put yourself in a position to be better than most people walking around on the street every day. And so now misunderstandings are going to come to you at a, at a, at a way less frequent interval, at, at way less frequent intervals, because you have controlled what you could control, which is what you put in the world how you communicate with others. You stopped being a victim of all these things and you became the process owner in fixing that. Whether or not it's perfect, it doesn't have to be. Nothing is. It just has to be better. You know, because those are very alarming stats. Considering that 93% of what you are saying goes on deaf ears based on your tone and the way you look. Are you kidding me? That's absolutely preposterous. So, okay, so now let's, let's, um, let's take this and let's bring it to the favorite means of communication today, which is texting each other. What does that actually do? What does that out? out and we know that, you know, it creates issues and we know that it's cre- it creates misunderstanding and all, but how much does it actually impact our communication and our relationships? I'm going to argue a lot more than we give it credit for. So if we can control some of those parameters and we can control the way we do business we're going to mitigate some of the risk associated with being, you know, mistreated or being or being misunderstood or being whatever the case may be. Because a lot of the times, if you look at the total, totality of the circumstances in, in dispute or things, generally it's based on misunderstanding. Generally what happens. And generally it's communication based. And I do believe too, like hu- humans have ad- adopted this ability and I don't even believe it's a great ability, but the, the, the power of assumptive thought. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to sit here and listen to the words you say, but yet take that message and then apply it in a misconstrued way to let it fit your perspective on maybe what you're thinking, but to not ex- truly accept what you're saying and then flip it into assumptive thought is another thing that we are horrible at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what's funny is there is the theory of obviously of constructivism, which is exactly that. So you can teach by constructivism, which is I'm going to teach certain concepts and you based on your knowledge skills and ability life experience so on and so forth are going to take what i'm saying and make it work for you and there's a lot of benefits for that there's a ton of benefits the problem is it also can be a double-edged sword because if you have a pre-established narrative everything i say or could say is going to feed into that narrative if you let it so what's really important to do is to control the emotional reactions that you're having to the words and listening and listen carefully to what's being said and re-listen to it again and do it again and go, you know what? That is not actually what he is saying. This is what I'm, this is what I'm making out 
of him saying, or this is what my perception of him saying is. And if you, if you have people that are highly controversial, and I'll take somebody that I, I think is a brilliant mind, mind, but has obviously ideas that I disagree with, Jordan Peterson, for example, like great mind, brilliant mind. There's no question about that, but he questions everything. So when you question everything, sometimes, you know, you obviously will come up with things that you're coming up short on and that's normal. And so a brilliant mind like Jordan Peterson, but people that have their own narrative on certain things, listen to one sentence that he might say and, and, and blow it out. And it's like, no, 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 that is not what he has said at all. In fact, none of it is real. You're, you're now, you're now constructing whatever you want to fit the narrative that you have in your head. So for me, it's about, okay, this creates an emotional reaction in me for whatever reason, I'm going to kind of let it sit. I'm going to go do dishes. I'm going to do some studying. I'm going to do whatever. And then I'll come back and listen to it again to see if it strikes me as the same. And then I'm going to take it in another context because you know that people that speak publicly generally have spoken about those concepts before. So I'm going to find another source of him speaking about this to see if there's any clarifying piece that can help me. This is critical analysis. This is you taking control of your own self and getting over yourself and actually getting the best out of everybody you meet. This is how you do it. But as soon as you let yourself fall in that emotional reactive state, guess what? You muddy your own waters. <laughs> you do, you do. You're, you're you're basically a diver at the bottom, kicking your fins on the in the in the silty surface, and then the water gets silty, and you're like, "There's silt here." Yeah, you you made that. And if you if you believe that in your life, you're not going to experience some of what we're talking about. Uh, again, you are being very naive to the fact that life is going to throw you so many curveballs. And that you will eventually have to challenge yourself on so many different things that you have. Uh, we haven't even really dove into like, say, childhood trauma or, or kind of that perspective, that lens that we gain as children that later on in life, as we grow older, we actually have to look at ourselves and say, okay, where, where does the hard work actually need to happen here? Something I'd love to hear from you too is your approach to, uh, now we're going to take more of a, a view of how Seb looks internally for that that self-love, that self-acceptance, uh, and allowing kind of some of those those inner concepts to happen. Because I think a lot of men too definitely struggle with the idea of, you know, giving themselves grace uh, to go through a struggle or to to look at themselves and say, you know what, I might be struggling right now. I might suck at this thing. I might be going through different uh, challenges in life. And then we become very hard on ourselves and that's not the right step either. So how do we learn to, as men, become better at, you know, expressing or feeling internal love, compassion? And that is such a better driving force than saying, allowing your anger or your hurt to come out and tear the world apart. Mm -hmm. Anger is a great temporary fuel. It's also the bodyguard of sadness. So a lot of people that have sadness and, and, and emotional hurt and will, will favor anger because it's easier to, it's easier. It actually is. It's easier to exteriorize, but it also doesn't make you seem as vulnerable because you're angry. Therefore, it feeds into the, the idea on the primal level that you are capable of physical violence. And, and, and I know that this is a, is a weird concept, but that's exactly what this is. You are, if you are vulnerable, you as a human being on a primal level feel like you are weak. Whereas if you are angry, you feel like you are strong. The fact is, it's not the case at all. A person that always gets angry is perceived as having a weakness by other people. 
Like it's not, you know, the, the, the thought that we think is, and so the person that's in control and, and calm is, is seen as being much stronger. And so you have to have the ability to, to look inwards and control those emotions, especially anger. It's a, it's a very destructive emotions. It's very destructive in relationship is very, it's, it's destructive in almost everything. Really. If you look at, um, I've, you look at people that train their entire life, say, let's talk about mixed martial artists for a second. The, the majority of mixed martial artists that are operating on anger do not do as well as those that have a clinical sort of more compassionate approach to their sport. And there's a reason for that. It's temporary fuel and it works sometimes. And, it, when, and when it does, it reinforces the fact that it works so then the people do it more. But the reality is it's very self-destructive and it comes with a whole wide array of, of internal complications that you will eventually have to face the, the consequences on. So, um, you know, I simply, for me, it's always about, am I doing the best I can based on the totality of the circumstances, on the things that I know at this moment and the things that I control that are within my span of control? Am I doing the best I can? If the answer is no, why aren't I doing the best I can? And then once I figure out even one thing that I could do better to, to, to move the needle towards doing the best I can, I will take that step right now because I don't need to be perfect. I just need to be better than I was yesterday. I just need to be better than after realizing that the needle needed to, to be moved. So the problem is this, humans want things to be perfect or we want to be perfect at things before we take them on. But also it speaks to another Another thing, which is insecurities in relation to certain things. So I'll give you this. How many people have you ever heard say, oh, yeah, I, I got to go back to the gym. I got to get I got to get back on the bandwagon. I got to get back on it. I got to do this. You were never on the bandwagon. You haven't spent a single day in your life as fit as you could have been ever. In fact, you never really trained consistently or seriously. So don't say I'm getting back on the bandwagon. You never were on the bandwagon at all to begin with. So be honest. I never trained as hard as I could. I never trained as hard as I should. I never trained as hard as I was capable of. But now is a transformational day for my life. I'm going to start doing the things I should have done 20 years ago and I'm going to do them now because the best time to do something was yesterday and the next best time is right now. Right? And so all those concepts, again, are feeding right into the concepts of killing the victim. You are not a victim of anything. Nothing interfered with you being in the, in the shape that you could have been or, 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 or doing a course that you could have done, or, you know, I, I'm using physical fitness, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be absolutely anything. It's just a, it's just a, an easy target because, you know, we hear it so often and it's, it's proliferated with vigor. Asking for help is another moment in life where I think a lot of men really struggle at being able to recognize that they no longer can go on on their own or whatever they're capable of doing in that moment actually isn't going to get them to where they need to get. What are your thoughts on that? Why do people procrastinate? People procrastinate generally not because they're lazy by nature, because they don't know what to do. People generally procrastinate because they don't know what to do. They don't know what, to, what step to take. And I'm going to bring this proposition. If you are to brainstorm with yourself 
you are going to come out with the same answer, you know, unless you have an, 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 a very unusual ability to, to, to really think outside the box and create processes, you know, by way of your own thought process and in light of your skills, life and experience. But here's the thing, reframe that. Okay. You don't like, you don't like the word. It creates a, a negative reaction in you. I don't want to seek help. I'm going to call my friend, Nathan, because he always has great insight about whatever. And I'm going to bounce this idea off of him. How can I, and between the two of us, we are going, he's going to help me problem solve, you know, some of the issues I have. Well, you can transpose that to a psychologist. You can transpose that to somebody, a mental health professional who's actually paid to know more than you about the, the way the brain functions. So you are spinning your wheels because you're lacking the technical knowledge, right? Is one way to reframe that. The reason why I'm having an issue right now, and I really don't know where the, the bottom and the top is, is because I have less actionable, knowledgeable of these mechanisms. So I'm going to tap into the brain of people that do so that I may consider the options. And at the end of the day, I take responsibility for my wellness. You actually haven't sought a rescue. You, you sought help so that you, cre you could create the rescue mechanisms in you. That is a very different concept. It's way easier for people to accept you and I having a conversation that lead, leads me to think differently than it is for me to say, I got to call Nathan because I need his help. And that's okay. If you're there and you're capable of doing that, I, I applaud you for having the ability to do that. That's a difficult thing to do. Some people have, are having a really hard time with that. The fact is there's other factors in there also is the factors of like, am I disturbing this person? Is this person already has enough on their plate and ears, you know, so those are compounding issues. Everybody knows, and especially that we're so vocal for the most part as human beings with our struggles. And I don't mean deep struggles. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about surface level struggles. You know, I got the kids, I got three jobs. I'm working like a maniac. I do this, I do that. And so it makes it really difficult for a person to now say, I'm going to call Nathan to pick his brain on this because I know Nathan's super busy. But I also know Nathan is a very loyal friend and he has a wealth of knowledge in this field. So I'm going to call him so that I may bounce stuff off so that I may create a rescue mechanisms in myself as a result of having newly acquired information and technical skills. Reframe that. Reframe whatever it is that's making you uncomfortable. That's within your purview. You can do that. You're allowed. You're allowed to reframe that. And whatever makes you makes it feel acceptable to you is good. Now we'll touch on one more piece that's related directly to this. There is an inherent need or there's an inherent, um, how can I call it, propensity for humans to want to be seen as dangerous. And that has to do with survival. That has to be that. And this is a primal thing. And it has to do with survival. And men are the worst at it. That is the reason why s such high numbers of suicide are men. And anyway, we can go on on a tangent forever, but it, it is a fact and it's proliferated by society. It has been over, you know, centuries and millenniums. And it's, 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 it's likely to be, to always be like that. But one of the things that we really want to start considering is that you can be a, a dangerous person, so to speak, not necessarily in the physical realm, but you can be a force to be reckoned with and 
still be that person that has emotional connection, that has compassion, that sometimes has emotion and emotions and lives them, those types of things does not change the fact that you are capable of what you are capable of. The only thing that you need to be overcompensating on are the things that you're truly not capable of. And this is what happens. If you are trying to control the things that you're truly not comfortable with, that's because there's insecurities there. And again, in light with what I was saying earlier, then you know you need work in that certain area. So understand this. People call it vulnerability. And, it, and I don't like that word. I actually don't. Let's call it being real. Let's call it being real. That's what it is. It's being real. Okay, this is how I feel right now. This is how this is. No, this is not vulnerability. It's not being vulnerable. It's not displaying vulnerability or weakness as people process it at all. It has nothing to do with it. Lions be lions, my friend. If a lion is lying under a tree with the, with the lioness and he's being compassionate and he's cuddling her and he's doing all the loving things that lions do with lioness and you go, you take a stick and you walk behind it and you poke it, you get eaten because it's a lion, right? It doesn't need to walk around telling other people they're a lion to be a lion. Vulnerability and this aspect of being real in our own lives is... It's something that is met with even on my own end, this thought of what my perception of normal was for so long, for so long, in that the fallacy or this fake perception of what a human should look like in order to appear to be normal was wrong for me for many, many years. And I'm now bracing this much different perspective that being abnormal is actually very normal. That is how we are wired. There is nothing normal. Normal isn't even a word that should exist in, in society as a way to label an individual. Are you normal or not? We are products of our environment and we are here no different than anyone else. We are just members of society. Now, Learning to trust yourself to make decisions and not have to reach out for help because we're, we're, we're slowly touching on this ability to construct for men that there may be points in your life where you're going to have to reach out for help and that's entirely okay. But then there's also going to be a time in life where you're going to need now need to jump out of the nest with your wings and flap them <laughs> and see what happens. How do you trust yourself and how do you help people kind of get to that stage where they can have that trust in themselves? Mm -hmm. I think just like anything else, it's an incremental step towards achieving that goal, right? So if the person is faced with the biggest challenge life has ever thrown at them, it isn't a good time. It isn't necessarily a good time for them to test their ability to, to, to completely do it on, on their own, unless they're at that point where they're like, yeah, I, I, I can't handle this. I, I can't seek perspective and I can't have conversation with my friends in order to bounce stuff off of those that are knowledgeable and, and, and do so in an organic way that I can actually deal with things. No problem. Um, and that's cool if you're there, but if you aren't the worst, you know, losing your kids in a, in a car accident, isn't going to be the time to test that theory. Like, let's call a spade a spade here. And, 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 you know, my heart goes to anybody who's lost kids, evidently. But it's about the fact is the big 
absolutely traumatic events in your life, in most people people's lives, unlike law enforcement personnel or first responders, most people will experience very few, very few highly critical incidents in their life. Most people, okay? Some will, definitely. So that being the case, you get a chance to rehearse and practice those those self rescue mechanisms as you as they become more as you become more comfortable with them in the various little things and that starts with getting perspective and perspective comes from where perspective is worse not better right so it's really important that you're able to seek perspective consistently and you have to do it in a constructive way you can't be like look at my position i'm so I'm so bad right now and look at this person who's doing great. That is not the right kind of perspective. Yeah, we all can find somebody that makes more money, that has a a, a nicer house, that has a, a more beautiful family, that has whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, who has it worse than me? And I, I operationalized that when I had my leg injury in Toronto. And I was in Toronto and I was, you know, on day two of essentially being between life and death and potentially losing the leg and doing all this good stuff. And I started thinking to myself, where do I gain perspective from right now? And I'm like, I know our veterans, like those that are, you know, overseas in Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever. And as it turns out, I started doing a bit of research on Afghanistan. And one of the U.S. soldiers who was a ranger, a 24-year-old stud, ended up basically being blown up by a, a, an improvised explosive device on a patrol and lost all four limbs. And he had 27 surgery in two months, 27 surgeries in two months. And he is now a torso who has an absolutely gorgeous wife who's about 26 years old. And just imagine what kind of predicament he's in. And I look at, and I look at my leg and it's not about invalidating my own feelings. It's about seeking perspective. This could be a lot worse. And yes, it could always be better, but the better part is already passed. That ship has left the port. That's not going to happen. Okay. That's already done. So what I did is I allowed myself to kind of dwell on, on the fact that my predicament sucked for about a day. And then I sought perspective. I actively researched it. I didn't wait for somebody to miraculously bring me perspective. I sought it. And then once I found it, I was able to now you know, create you know, a feeling of hope, regardless of how critical my situation might be perceived at. I'm okay. I'm stable. I'm in a hospital in Toronto. Likely things aren't getting worse. If they are, there's, there's medical personnel around. I'm not in a third world country where there's no medical, you know, although sometimes our medical systems make you feel that way, but it is what it is. Um, I think so. So that is where your ability to, and, and this is what society, in my opinion, is doing wrong. It's well, no, you, 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 you can't think at who, as who, because then you're invalidating your own feelings. And if you're doing that, it's destructive. No, 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 no. Those are two different things. Invalidating your feelings is you saying, well, I shouldn't feel the way I feel because this person has it worse than me. That's an invalidation. But what we are doing is how am I reacting to this? What you are controlling is the reaction to whatever it is that's occurring. 
and my reaction is control. And I looked at somebody that has it 10 times worse than me and their, their attitude and their positivity and all this stuff. And I'm like, you can take a whole lot of hurt and keep driving forward. And that just reminded me of this. And I needed that reminder. And now I'm going to drive forward. And now you regain control of that. But if you don't allow yourself to do that, or if you seek perspective in the wrong places and you start going down the path of self-pity, that is going to compound all of your issues. And what happens when you start self-pitying? Spotlighting kicks in again, right? And so that concept never goes away. You are going to, cons- you are going to con- consistently spotlight yourself and the brain will magnify the, 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 the consequences associated to whatever it is that you are going through. It's not easy. I'm not going to stand here and say this is an easy process, but it has to happen. And you have, in order for that to happen, you need to have self-awareness and you need to have self-regulation, self-awareness and self-regulation. When we tend to victimize ourselves or play the victim role, I think many of us have this bizarre concept that may surface that someone is going to come and save us, or at least our expectation is that someone will come and save us and, and fix the situation that we're in or the struggle, whatever the case is. Some of us may also, too, in that moment, much like you say, we're going to now try to figure out, put the finger on the pulse. Where are we in relation to others out there? Where is my suffering? Where is my struggle? How can I measure that effectively? So the the worst part about society is definitely the images we see through different uh, forms of TV, social media of all the success. Mm-hmm. So we see this and now all of a sudden we beat ourselves up over the fact that there's this monumental gap between yourself, someone who's struggling and someone who appears to be doing the right things in life and succeeding. And you now have this other layer of complexity of, oh no, I'm never going to be able to get there. Mm-hmm. Now, for you, this approach to remove that completely from anything that's coming in, the recipe of life, like just completely remove it and focus on the people who are rock stars, who have gone through way worse and who are out there sharing their story. Listen to those stories. Because I can guarantee you, and much like you said, Seb, it's going to shift things. It's going to give you the right perspective. It's really going to let you have now, instead of misery for the gap that exists, it's going to allow you to start looking at your life and going, wow, I actually have a lot to be grateful for. And gratitude is something that is amazing for us to practice. If you can't sit at least once in your day and hold space for the the art or the practice of paying thanks being grateful for what you have in your life, you're not doing it well, in my opinion. You really do need to hold that space. And much like you said in life, we we tend to get into these automatic type of states where we just go. And you need to stop and give thanks for what you have. Look around. What you've built is truly amazing and you've done it. What are your thoughts on gratitude, my friend? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Gratitude is extremely important. And I what I like to do sort of with my clients when we are addressing gratitude is you need to experience gratitude on a subsurface level because the issue is 
otherwise it becomes a tacky word that everybody throws around just like mindfulness without true understanding of the inner workings of it and really oh yeah i'm i'm you know i i i use gratitude every day or i or i'm grateful for everything are you though really you you just realized that you were thirsty 30 seconds ago you extended your arm grabbed a bottle like a thermal bottle on your table which has cold water in it clean water at, at that with no pollutants and no things that are no no microorganisms that are going to kill you you insert it in your mouth and you emptied it and now you refilled it with equally as good quality product and you put it you know that in itself transpose this to a country that's in a third world country where every Every sip you take can kill you, give you malaria, give you cholera, such as the case in Haiti right now, 10,000 deaths of cholera in a year and a half. It's a pandemic again, and it's a very easy, easily treatable disease, which is now killing you know people on a biblical scale. All of those things. And so there is ways to do that. And when it comes to visualizing, you need to take the time to actually go deeper in your visualization. So I'll give you an example of that. And it works for mental and emotional preparedness to trauma as well. So it's like, it's not enough to tell somebody you're, you're entering a career in policing. You are going to see dead bodies. Okay. You're going to see dead bodies. You're going to see people are going to try to hurt you. All those things. It doesn't mean anything unless you feel it. That is what the problem is. And so one of the things I like to do in the exercise of, of, um, of uh, visualization is to take the visualization and, and engage all senses into it. So if I say, I'm going to take a minute here to think about how grateful I am that I have this clean water, I'm going to close my eyes. And when I take a sip, I'm going to imagine it tasting like freaking tar or something, uh, some chemical taste or urine or something that's foul and disgusting. I'm going to let myself feel that. And then I'm going to get my, let myself feel the envy that I feel towards those that have clean water and how amazing it would be to have it. And then I will put to this the scent that goes along with it. What does it smell like? Rotten egg, maybe, or chemicals of one way or another, or whatever the case may be. So the idea is to actually not only practice truly establishing, truly being grateful, but it's establishing why am I grateful? Because this is what it feels like if this isn't happening. This is what it feels like. This is what it tastes like. This is what it smells like. This is what it sounds like. You know? So you're basically taking, and it doesn't take you that much longer. Instead of doing it, you know, just, just for the sake of doing it, if you are to do anything, do it correctly. If I'm, if I'm to take a minute or two or three to think about how grateful I am for this glass of water or for having clean water or for having my family being healthy. And all I have to do is to transpose myself actually and allow, allow myself at a reasonable level to self-impose the pain associated with not having it. I'm never going to match it. If I, if I do the same in a rehearsals of what, what am I going to do if one of my daughters has an accident, but I still do it. I will go as far as I can in my head to see how, and you have no control over that. So you can't, you can't start, you know, going down the rabbit holes and it, it is what it is. When people are given birth, they have their own path. Some of them 
is to live a hundred. Others is to live to be seven. And there is nothing you and I can do about it. We can give them the tools that we can, but they have their predicated path. They have their predicated, you know, line of lifeline. And ultimately we have no control over that. And they are not ours. We do not possess them. We've brought them into this world to, to, to live their own life, their own purpose. Our goal is to give them as much as we can, but this is where helicopter parenting kind of comes in. Right. But anyways, so, so the key, the key for me is if I'm doing to do an exercise in gratefulness, I'm going to do it to the point where by the time I'm done, I actually know what it tastes like to drink tar water. And that really, really sort of beef beefs up the, the, you know, what am I grateful for? It's no longer just a tacky words that you use and throw here and there to try to get things. You've actually like so, sort of as close as you could experienced it because evidently you don't want to go and do it because there's a risk associated with it. Right. So, so, so it's just a matter of, but it is, it is very evident that in North American culture at the moment, we have lost our ways. We are completely, we are going around aimlessly. We have lost our ways. We, our level of comfort has reached unprecedented levels. Our level of resilience is as low as it's ever had been. And I can, I can exemplify this. I was teaching in a war-thorn country where people are getting killed on a biblical scale. And I, was, I had a class of about 18 people. And I started speaking about mental wellness and suicide. And they looked at me like I had another eye in my forehead. And they're like, what is that? I'm like, that's people taking their own lives. And they're like, people do that? And so I, I'm like, yeah, people, people do that. And they're like, why? And, I, and I, was, I stood there stunned. So I started looking at statistics. I'm like, you know what? Maybe they're just in a class that doesn't experience it. Maybe I started making you know, this little framework around why they didn't know what suicide was. And I looked at the stats and they were about 6% lower than our 12.7% per 100,000 people. Think of it this way. This looks like an insignificant difference. They have half the suicide rates that we have, but their life is nothing but misery. Nothing but. So that exponentially blows up the fact that how in the hell do we did we get here and why so now you're starting to get into some very complex relationship between adversity and resilience and blah 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 and the case go on and on and i certainly you know wouldn't even feel qualified to kind of dive into this so deeply but all i can say is as a society as a comfortable society we have lost our ways and we have lost our ways because we've been way too comfortable for way too long that is a fact. How do we fix that is the question. I don't have those answers either. <laughs> no, nor do I. I guess one, but, bit, one bit at a time, right? But, it, well, and the funny thing is, is like, I, I can remember as being a small child, we, my first real kind of uh, dose of reality was when we went out to get something, firewood for the house in Northern Alberta. And the people that ended up dropping it off, they came from nothing. They had dirt floors. They didn't have insulated walls. They lived in a, probably an eight by eight shed that was plywood with some two by four framing and 
and a makeshift roof. Uh, they had a bed frame that was metal with no mattress on it. Uh, when they went to write down our address, they took out a, a bullet and used the lead from the bullet to write down our address on a cigarette package. And in that moment, I saw people that were living outside basically in negative 40 degree weather. And I came home to my comfortable house uh, with all of the things I had as a child. And I remember looking at my parents and I'm like, is this what gratitude feels like? Because right now I just saw someone going through hell and they were happier than I am. 100%. We all need that dose of reality. We absolutely do. And I, and I will go, I will go a step in the same direction as you and say, seek it seek it that's why you have these these guys that have accomplished great things in life basically um sort of pushing for people to do hard things and yes do hard things and that's not just physically it's mentally and emotionally and intellectually do the difficult things do the things that are making you uncomfortable do the things that are making you physically uncomfortable set yourself some challenges that are crazy to you you know, and crazy is a very interesting concept. Crazy is what? Depends who you speak to. It depends who you speak to. I can say to you today, I ran two half marathon today. And you're like, oh my God, you're crazy. And, and somebody else is looking at this and like, this is how I train every day at 4 a.m. And then this other person says, actually, I, you know, it, 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 there is no limit to how uncomfortable you can make yourself. But what you have to be really careful there is one trap in there is if you get too comfortable at controlling the discomfort level, then you become comfortable at, at basically on account of the fact that you are in control of when you are uncomfortable. So you need to seek ways that are truly outside of your comfort zone, not that you got inoculated to and you are now capable of because then you're kind of losing some of the benefits. You need to do it in a variety of different ways. And it's really interesting like, hey, man, if you live long enough, is there a reason why you shouldn't have a PhD? If you live long enough, is there a reason why you shouldn't be, you know, having competed in this competition or didn't or did whatever? You know, I'm, I'm really rambling here. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. But the fact is, most people live until they're 25 and they don't die until they're 75. That is not what life is supposed to be about. That is not how you optimize happiness and meaning and purpose and 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 having such an a, a deep experience with this journey called life that when you look back at it you're like that body was done there was nothing else it was ring like a towel you know it was it was and 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 man i have exhausted everything i've ever wanted to do and what you will find is when you live life like this you will reach a point where you are good to go any day because you feel like you've accomplished and done so much of the things that were meaningful that you wanted to do that you no longer cling to the idea of leaving forever. And that is such an incredibly liberating place to be when everything you get in life is a bonus. The ceiling that we often put above our heads shouldn't be there. Period. There is no limitation to what we can achieve, what we can do with this life. Seb, I want to, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for being on this podcast. Uh, this could go on easily for at least another two hours, but we both have lives and we both have to get back to them. I have nothing but love for you, my friend. Thank you for being on this episode. Thank you for sharing your journey with life. 
the perspe- the perspective that you've been able to gain and the the amazing work that you're continuing to do post policing i cannot wait to see where you end up my friend i mean that ditto brother i i wish you nothing but the best and i know that uh we're going to be in this together which is great 